good to be here with you again on this uh, beautiful Sunday morning. That gorgeous weather today. We're uh, back in Philippians 1, where we were the last time. I thought we'd finish the chapter this morning. I just got back from India a week ago. As happens to me at least once a year, I came back with a virus. And so I've been sick for a week, and by God's happy providence, I got my voice back yesterday, just in time, or, or uh, you know, I, I, I could have worked this out with Mike, and uh, he could have been my dummy, and I could have whispered the, the sermon into his ear, and then he could have preached it. There you go. I'd be Moses and you'd be Aaron. It could work that way too. We're, I'm in Philippians chapter 1, right at the end of the chapter, starting in verse 27. Hear the word of God. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. Thus ends a reading of God's word. May he add his blessing to it. In this little section of Philippians, Paul is dealing with the obstacles that he's been facing in ministry. The Philippian church is concerned about him on on numerous fronts. And uh, the first little section in verses 12 to 14, it's about the crummy circumstances. He's in prison. That's pretty crummy. And then in verses 15 to 18, it's about troublemakers in the church. And we talked a little bit about that in the past, about troublemakers in the church and then verses 19 to 26 it's about the uncertainty of the of his future he doesn't know even tomorrow whether he's going to live or die and he wants to honor christ in life and death and in this little section it's about the fear of opposition and hardship and how to deal with that fear and paul's solution for fear and hardship is to strive and to stand firm now when I say the word strive, or when you were, we were just reading that together, what do you, what do you think of as striving? Um, uh, like, is it hard work? Is it, uh, is it pushing a car down the street that doesn't run? You know, that's, that's somebody that would be striving hard, wouldn't they? And foot, we just saw a bunch of football yesterday, and many of you did, and so the linemen are always striving really hard to push each other out of the way. What does it look like to stand firm? What's the first thing, the visual image that you get in your mind? To me, it's always a giant standing in the face of a cyclone, a huge wind with his hands on his hips, standing firm against a wind that wants to blow everything down and, and, and can't blow him down. But And so that's what Paul tells us to be like, is to strive and to stand firm. But the the key here is that the source of our striving and standing firm is is not the fact that we're giants. It's not our own strength. It's the power of the gospel. And so I want to show you that this morning in in three different ways. Um, The first is uh, what I've called worthy conduct or 
Paul says, live in a manner or a conduct. Let your conduct be worthy of the gospel. So that's the first thing I wanted to look at is worthy conduct. The, the late speaker of the house, Tip O'Neill, back in the 80s, he was speaker. He was famous for saying all, all politics is local. And uh, nowhere was that more true than in the Roman Empire. He, even though the empire's expanse surrounded the whole Mediterranean Sea, citizenship at the local level was still very important. And, and every little city had its own customs and, and manners and, and culture. And so much so that the Greek word for conduct, conducting yourself for behavior, comes from the same word as city. The, the idea was is that your conduct reflects on your city and your sense of community and belonging to that city affected your conduct. And so Paul takes that cultural reality of conduct and city and he writes it into our passage. And, and so what he's saying is that there are customs and manners that are integral to the gospel and central to belonging to the city of God's grace, which is the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and so because our citizenship is in heaven, he's telling us that we're supposed to live a certain way. So Paul says, live a worthy life, worthy of the city of God, worthy of the gospel itself. Now, now what the average Christian thinks about, the average churchgoer, when they hear the preacher say, live a, a worthy life, the first thought usually goes to some moral issue, some referendum, some idea about ethics and morality. And, and that's okay because character and morality matter in the kingdom, but the gospel is not licentious. But but what's missing most in a perverse and an immoral culture is not ethics. What's missing most is love. Ethics are always a reflection of your love. And, and I think you can see that so easily in our culture on social media. We're, we're missing the core element of love in our culture. And, and sacrificial love, you see, is the heart of the gospel. It's the heart of living a worthy life for the gospel's sake. Jesus says, they'll know you're my disciples by your love for one another. So Paul says a similar thing to the Ephesians that he says to the Ephesians, to the Philippians. He says, uh, in Ephesians 4, he says, I, I therefore, prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling of which you've been called. And then he goes on to describe it. He says, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. The Spirit establishes unity in the body of Christ. It's up to the church to maintain that unity and to strive together to maintain it. And when you compare that back to the Philippians, Paul says to the Philippians that in the grand scheme of things, it doesn't matter what happens to him, whether they see him again or not. What matters is how these people live. So he says, live a worthy gospel life, standing firm together in one spirit, striving together as one person for the faith of the gospel without being afraid of opposition. And the worthy life is focused on brotherly love and unity. And, and this is the culmination of everything Paul has been saying since verse 12. 
He, he says, I'm in chains, but, but I have joy because it's for the advancement of the gospel. He, he says, there's troublemakers even in the church who are out to hurt me, but I rejoice when Christ is preached and the kingdom advances. He, he says, I'm faced with uncertainty about the future and whether it will bring life or death, but it doesn't matter because either way, Christ will be exalted. So now he says to the Philippians, you face all the same hurdles, all the same obstacles, all the same struggles that I do. And what matters is whether the gospel advances and how it advances is by living rightly. And the worthy gospel life is about humility, about uh, humble unity, about bearing with one another in love, striving together in the face of opposition, standing firm, in one spirit. You know, there's countries in the world, in the United Nations either, and, and countries with, that, that have totalitarian dictatorships. And, and in those countries, the good of the individual is swallowed up by the good of the community. What matters is the community. And if necessary, the individual be, will be sacrificed for the good of the whole. And you can see that clearly in communist countries and Islamo-fascist countries. On the other hand, in the West, like America, the good is usually defined by the individual. We see that even in the church. We're often reminded that the rights of the individual are not to be trampled by the rights of the majority. And the latest issue that in the headlines is transgender bathrooms and kids and who has a right in those bathrooms. And the reality is in our culture, if necessary, we will sacrifice the good of the whole for the sake of the one. That's how we're wired. Now, which one of those philosophies is biblical? Well, the answer is neither. Neither is biblical. You see, in the city of God, in the church, what's good, in the church of Jesus, what's good for the individual is always good for the community. And what's good for the community is always good for the individual. The two always serve each other and they're intermeshed together. Therefore, we love our neighbor, how? As ourselves. And that serves to instruct us about what's good. You see, if it's good for my poor brother or, or my poor sister to eat, then it must be good for me to give them food. You see how that works? That's why Jesus says it's better to give than to receive. If it's good for men and women in a congregation to get together and pray, then it must be for the benefit of our leaders to gather these folks and lead them in prayer, and then it would be good for you to go as well. Do, do you get how this works together? What's good for the one is good for the whole. What's good for the whole is good for the one. If, if, it's, if it's good for me to personally seek God and to study his word and to pray and to grow spiritually, then the purpose of that growth must always have some community good. In the kingdom, that's how it works. My growth never happens just for me. It's always for me and for the body of Christ. And that's true for all of us. And this is so central to the city of God that the Bible says, if you don't love your brother, well, then you don't love God. That, that's the testing ground. Now, 
This is why I love team sports. That sounds a little shameless, but it's true. This is why I love team sports, because it teaches that the good of the whole is wrapped up in the, in the good of the one. And, and yet pursuing the, the one person's good always has the team as its focus. They, they work together. I remember back 20 years ago when my second son, Josh, had just turned 13, and he was playing baseball, and I was the coach. And uh, Josh landed on a neglected baseball team of 13 and 14-year-olds, and I was the coach of this team. And the reason it was neglected, I inherited a bunch of 14-year-olds who never played as 13-year-olds because the previous coach didn't understand the concept that he was training the future. All he cared about was winning that game, and that meant the 13-year-olds sat on the bench and the 14-year-olds played. And so it was like we had 15 rookies on the team. It was the step from the little field to the big field. So I didn't have a single kid on the team that had ever pitched from a 60-foot mound. We didn't have a clue what we were doing. We were really bad. We, one game, uh, we walked nine batters in one inning. And, uh, and we lost that game 15 to nothing in th based on the mercy rule, thank goodness. <laughs> We, we only had to play that game for three innings. We lost 15 to nothing in three innings. And at spring break, we were one and six. We were just happy to have won that game. But, but something special, something special was going on in this little team. There were no superstars, even though we had talent. We worked hard in practice, and the assistant coach and I relentlessly taught fundamentals to improve our team. And... Uh, one of the things we did together as a team is when anybody messed up, they did push-ups, and we often did them together so that when you messed up, it cost for the whole team. And, and the coach and I, would we would hardly ever yell at anybody. We'd just simply say, drop and give me 10, and, and they would do it. If somebody was lazy running to get a ball, they, get, they did 10 push-ups. And so we did gobs and gobs of push-ups. We did so many that I made up a motto for our team. We stink, but we're strong. And so the kids, the boys loved that motto. And every time somebody messed up in the game, they would turn and look at each other and they'd say, we stink, but we're strong. And so the boys worked hard and they were striving together. And the camaraderie on that team was incredible. And we went on a seven-game winning streak and we finished second in the division, and then we swept the three-game tournament to win the league. And it happened because we stirred, stood firm and we strived together in the face of opposition. Now, as a coach, I learned a life lesson on that team that is carried over into the church, and that is that the, the success of the team depends on the success of the individuals at each position, and vice versa, you see. It's a gospel lesson. Now, it's just baseball, right? It's not persecution. It's not hardship. But the result was the same. Victory comes through unity. You're about to get a new pastor. I want you to remember this, so say it with me. Victory comes through unity. You say it. Victory comes through unity. You remember that, okay? Remember today, victory comes through through unity. Unity that's worked for. Unity that's not worked for is not unity. That's just, that's just having the same preferences. 
Now, those of you who are on the fringes this morning, and I know that's some of you, you don't come to Sunday school, you're not really plugged in. I just want to know what's keeping you from making an effort to work hard together at Grace Church, at Grace Covenant. What keeps you on the fringes when the answer to opposition and hardship is unity, striving together? Second thing I wanted to show you this morning is meaningful conduct. First, worthy conduct, and then meaningful conduct. Look again at verse 28. It's a really interesting verse. It says, this is a clear sign to them of their destruction, talking about the opposition. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and, fr- and that from God. Now, that's a weird verse. Paul is saying that when the body of Christ, when the church works hard together in unity to stand firm against our opposition, that this unity is a gospel sign. It's a heavenly sign. It's a sign to the opposition that they stand under judgment, and it's a sign to the church that we are being saved, and it's a sign that's revealed by God himself. In other words, when the church consistently stays unified, when the church consistently stands firm in our gospel commitments, when the church doesn't compromise in the face of opposition, When the church does these things, it's obviously a supernatural work of God because there can be no other explanation. Because if you know yourself and you know the other folks in this church, you know how prone we are to disintegrate when times get hard and life gets busy and we get our feelings hurt. Every church goes through these cycles of crises, and we consider commitment optional, and some will withdraw and hurt. And we blame others for our problems and we begin to criticize each other and then we criticize our leaders behind their backs and eventually the seeds of discord are sown and the whole church rips apart. That, that, That tapestry rips apart at the seams. And most of us have experienced it at some time or another. So do you see what's at stake in in our unity, beloved? Church unity in the face of opposition is central to the advancement of the gospel because a unified church is a church where the Spirit is at work. Jesus says, they'll know you're my disciples by your love for one another. Without the community that's worked for, we're, we're just another religious social club meeting on Sunday morning. And, and beloved, because we know that our unity is assigned to believers and, and unbelievers, Paul says we have no fear. That's what drives out the fear, is when we become aware that our unity is a sign that God is at work. Not, not the lack of opposition, not the lack of hurdles or obstacles, but when unity comes in the midst of those hurdles and opposition, that's when we know that God is at work. And therefore, our fear gets driven out. Whatever hardships we face, we work through together. No fear. Whatever opposition, cultural or otherwise, we work through together. No fear. And so you see the problem when you're on the fringe, when you stand on the sidelines of the church and you don't get involved, you, you miss this outstanding benefit of the kingdom of facing fears together. And it's really lonely out there. So Paul tells the Philippians that standing firm together in the face of similar struggles will serve to advance the gospel. Now, now how incredible is that? That 
being unified in the Spirit advances the gospel. Their their unity is a sign of grace to encourage other believers. And then it's a sign of judgment to those who ignore God because spirit-driven unity is confirmation that God is at work in his people because there's no other explanation. God is here. And unity gives a whole new perspective then to the promise of Romans 8.28 where Paul says we know that God love, for, for, that for those who God loves all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Now what does it mean? What does it mean then for that, for that God to be working for our good? It, it gives a, a new twist to it con- considering Paul is in chains. Facing death, the definition of good has a, a gospel twist. The, the, the good that God is promising is what's good for the advancement of the gospel. In other words, God's promise to work for our good is always in the context of the eternal consequences of the kingdom and God's church. So God's not promising us a better job, though we might want one. Nor is he promising us more money, though it might make things easier. Nor is he promising easier parenting, though we wish that were all true. He's promising something better. He's promising that he is at work in the circumstances of his children. He's working in our circumstances to bring about lasting results for the kingdom in our midst. And that's good for us because we're heirs of the kingdom. It's a sign of destruction for the enemies of God, but it's a sign of salvation for others. Now, do you see it? Do you see how free this makes us? We are as free as Paul to seek the exaltation of Christ and to be world changers, a world that's changed by serious and sacrificial love. Because when we stand together in unity, especially in hard times, God is working in our midst to advance his own plan for, with an eternal purpose. Imagine how this might change your life. Instead of saying this, Look at what the world has come to, which is what we say when we talk about transgender bathrooms. We say, look look at what the world is coming to. No, this is what the gospel says. Look at what has come to the world. The gates of death themselves will not prevail against God's church. Not when she stands unified around the cross and loving one another. God is supernaturally at work in the life of his church so that nothing can stand in our way of advancing the gospel. That's one, why one of the values for the church planning network that, that I have, um, have been a part of and been a coach for, church planters, one of our values was uh, to be relentless in evangelism. It doesn't sound very Presbyterian, I know, but to be relentless in evangelism. Imagine such a thing. Relent, say it with me. Relentless evangelism. Not aggressive evangelism. Not obnoxious evangelism. But a never say quit evangelism. Now I can imagine it because it's God who says that he's giving his people and the world a sign of his work through supernatural unity of his church. Did, did you know that most people in a church who've been, most people who've been in a church over five years no longer do evangelism and no longer invite people to church. Did you know that? Most people who've been in church, uh, uh, in, in a current church for over five years, 
never invite anybody, and they, and they don't do evangelism. I wonder if that's you. Are you still praying for the five people that I asked you to pray for earlier this year? Is that list still on your bathroom mirror or somewhere where you can see it to pray for those five people so that you could invite them to church? When God is unifying a church around love, he brings other people to find that, be captured by the love of Christ. Third thing, gracious conduct. Not only worthy conduct and meaningful conduct, but gracious conduct. Look again at verse 29. He says, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. Now, wow, that's a double wow. Do, do you see how all this ties together? The word granted is from the word that means grace, which means it's a gift. Now, now, clearly, we know that our faith is a work of God's grace. It's a gift. That's what Paul says in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, that our faith is a gift from God. That's one of those solas that we love in the Reformed faith. But how often have you thought of your suffering and struggles as a work of God's grace? That's what he says right here. It's a gift. And, and Paul says both are gifts from God. And, you know, the truth is, is you can't achieve anything of lasting significance without struggle and pain. We'd all love our lives to be as free from pain and free of struggle as possible. But you can't achieve anything of lasting value without struggle. It's part of the path. I, I was at a meeting some years ago where the bulk of the prayer was that God would bless his people, his ministers, his churches, the members, the children. And I, I'm pretty sure that the, the prayer was for good things and for success to happen for us. But this passage here in Philippians, I think, expands our view of what it means to be blessed by God. There, there's a great story of Elisha the prophet in 2 Kings 4, we won't read it, I'll just remind you of the story, um, where God grants a childless lady the, the, the gift of a son. Maybe you remember the story. Elisha, as he would travel about, uh, would often stay overnight at this uh, wealthy lady's house. She was married, and they had a lot of land and servants. And so eventually they built a little room on the top of the, their house for him to stay in so that he had his own quarters. He loves staying there. And so, uh, you know, everybody's happy. And, and, and so one time they're staying there and Elisha turns to his servant and he says, is there something we can do for this lady? Is there something she doesn't have that we could give her? And he says, a son. We could give her, she doesn't have a son. She doesn't have a child. And so, so Elisha gives her a son. God does. And uh, she's overwhelmed. Everybody's happy. And then a few years later, as a five or six-year-old boy, he's out in the field, and he has a tremendous headache, uh, and, uh, and he dies. Don't know if it's heat exhaustion, aneurysm, or what. And, and she was pretty angry. And I think her response was pretty normal, and she runs, and she, fi she finds Elisha, and she fusses at him. And she says, did I ask you for a son? In other words, this lady at this point believes that she would have been better off if she had never known the joy of a son because then she would have been spared the grief of her loss. You think she's right? 
Would she have been better off not having the joy of the son since it would have kept her from the tremendous grief of the loss? That's what she believed. She was angry. I think that's a pretty normal response. But I don't think she's right. Because she has an idol that's in her heart. And the idol that lay deep in her heart goes like this. That idol says God's gifts are not good enough unless we approve of the terms. Oh, that's the idol. I might have that idol. I don't know about you. That God's gifts are not good enough unless we approve of the terms. Now, the gracious part of that story is that she got her son back. Elisha healed her, but she learned a tremendous lesson. That God's blessing is about knowing him, not simply the benefits of his power. The greatest gift that he shares is himself. And he shares more of himself in the midst of pain than he does in the midst of the success of the easy times. And the church becomes more meaningful as a body of Christ when we face opposition because we have to do it together than when times are easy. God, God, God grants his children faith and suffering both for the glory of the kingdom so that we might know him more deeply. You see, our king is a suffering king, and he shares his glory with us so that we can have the greater joy of standing firm. You know, the hardest thing in the Bible to believe, I, I think, the hard, it's, not the, it's not the resurrection, which is outstanding, and there's some really weird stuff in the Old Testament, amen? Re really weird stuff. That's not the hard stuff to believe. The hardest thing in the, to believe in the Bible is that God's strength is the most greatly revealed and perfected in our weakness. I think that's the hardest thing to believe. That at the same time that I'm supposed to run as hard and fast as I can, but I, that I'm really just a baby, a toddler at this. And that God is working his strength out in us. That's hard to believe. Proverbs 10 says this, when the tempest passes, when the storm passes, the wicked is no more, but the righteous is established forever. Is that incredible? The believer and the unbeliever both experience the storm. The difference is grace. Here's another, Psalm 20. Some trust in chariots and some in horses. But we trust in the name of Jehovah, our God. They collapse and fall, but we rise and stand upright. I'm sure that's written about the Alabama and the Auburn game. How is it that the righteous stand firm? Well, it's by faith in the Lord. You see, there's no other way. And it's not even the strength of our faith. That's what the prosperity movement says. It's the strength of your faith. No, our faith is even weak as a mustard seed. You can see this so clearly when Peter and John are arrested in, the, in Acts 5 for preaching and healing in the name of Jesus. They, they, they suffer for preaching and then they, they left the presence of the council after getting a beating, rejoicing that they were considered worthy to suffer dishonor for the name of Christ. That that's only happens by grace. 
The suffering of the church is part of God's kingdom plan, not because he's some third world tyrant insisting that we hurt, but because our enemies are real and because the suffering of the church reveals the glory of Christ as he bears fruit through us and in us. Because every great thing that you'll achieve happens as a result of struggle. There's no other way. Every false religion in the world promotes success as the means of righteousness. It's only the good news of salvation through Christ, uh, uh, through Christ alone which fully reveals that we are helpless without grace. Jesus says, apart from me, you can do nothing. Even as the church changes the world, beloved, we have to depend upon his grace to stand firm against the enemy, striving together in one spirit. And the irony is, is that without the grace of struggling, we would simply turn on each other instead of striving together. That's why churches that don't do outreach and don't work against the opposition end up in as a mess because you end up fighting if you don't have another opposition to face. You see how that works? You have to fight the opposition, not each other. That's the way that works. And that's the reason prayer is so important. Without a life of prayer, you can't be unified. Now, here's the bad news. If you stay on the fringe, if you keep God and his church at arm's length, then you will not experience the deeper joy of unity and striving and sharing. Instead, you'll remain afraid, and the grief and the struggle will be a lonely battle that you never seem to win. I know some of you have been hurt by others and maybe even by God himself. But you see, we're designed for deep and lasting community. And in a sinful world where we sin ourselves, the only salvation, the only lasting joy is found in the community of God's people. And if you seek division instead of unity, then that division will come back to you and your family. It always does. And the bad news is, is that if you'll only accept God and his people on your own terms, well, then you may be shut out altogether, counted by God as opposition instead of a friend. That would be so bad. But there is good news, beloved. It's an incredible good news. Jesus says, behold, I make all things new. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus died on a cross for your sins, even the sin of trying to set the terms, even the sin of not standing firm together, even the sin of not striving together in one spirit. He paid for all those sins. And he rose from the dead to give us new life, to cast out the fear of opposition and suffering so that you can live in complete joy for the sake of Christ. Jesus did all that for us. And so I invite you this morning to put your hopes and dreams once again in your trust in the Lord Jesus. Embrace the struggle and strive together. He will never let you down. You know, Jesus said that the wicked hate him, so they'll hate us as well. That's how it works. That's especially true of the religious enemies of the cross. But you see, their, their hatred for us reveals the glory of God in us. Because you see, there's only one reason that anyone would ever hate a unified church that's filled with love. Can you imagine somebody hating a church where there's lots of love? Where everyone is welcome and everyone is gathered like chicks to a hen. Why would anybody ever hate that church? 
Well, it would only be if they hate Jesus because Jesus would be at work in that church. So the apostles rejoiced that they were considered worthy of being hated for loving Christ. It's an honor to be identified with him. And you see, the victory, the victory that God gives us is, not, is about never losing sight of this, beloved, that we have been given faith as a gift along with suffering, all for the sake of Christ that his glory might be revealed in us and his glory might revealed to us so that we would have great joy striving together. And that, my friends, is the glorious grace of the gospel. Let's stand for prayer. Our Father, we thank you once again for your word. Thank you for the work that's going on in the life of this church. What an exciting month ahead. We continue to pray, Lord. And uh, pray that David Donovan would clearly be the right man over the next week and two weeks. And that this church would rejoice in our new leader. Father, striving together in unity. Would you grant unity here in a way that this church has maybe never even seen, Lord? A unity that's spirit-driven and, and that these folks are working hard to maintain. That we might walk in a worthy manner facing our obstacles and our struggles together as a clear sign of your work of grace. Would you do that here, Lord, so that people would say, hey, the Lord is at work in the life of Grace Church. And we pray it together in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen.